will be in the book of Matthew, chapter 27, um, verses 51 and following. We'll actually finish chapter 27 today as we've been going through. But before we do that, I want to read some Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah 53. And as we're going through that, you'll hear the prophecies of the Old Testament pointing us to the things that happened to Christ and, and saying all the things that actually happened to him. Starting in Isaiah 52, it says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. You can see in that, in that first bit there in, in Isaiah 52 in the suffering servant section that his physical suffering that he felt going up to the cross. You can already begin to feel it. And if you look at continuing Isaiah 53, starting at verse 3, <clears throat> 2 and 3, it says, For he grew, up like, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, and had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and yet we esteemed him not. So we can already see the king of glory, who's deserved of all the glory that is due him, as he comes down here, and this suffering servant is now experiencing pain. Also, the pain he's feeling is the glory that he deserves is being diminished as he's walking through life and as he's going, especially going in these last couple, these last couple hours of his life, the glory that he is due is also being very much diminished. And it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced or he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. So now we can begin to also see, as been prophesied, the suffering and psychological pain that Christ felt from the rejection of everyone all the way down to the very end. His friends were gone, his family was gone, all of the people that he knew for the, the time of his three-year ministry was gone, and even in the last moments as he, let, as he hung on the cross and yelled, Lama, Lama, Labaksamathani! Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even in that moment, he also is abandoned, forsaken by God the Father, completely alone. All we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And that, and that verse where we can already begin to feel Christ's friends are gone. They're, they're straying like sheep. They're turning to their own way. And the Lord is laying on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that is before its shears silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living. Stricken for the people for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and <clears throat> with a rich man his death. We're already going to see that in Matthew today of Joseph buying his, his grave. A very rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And here at the very end of this 
particular suffering servant, we see the suffering pain of his own father, God the Father, his anger and wrath being poured out on Christ against him. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, shall prolong his days, and the Lord shall prosper in his, in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and he shall be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall, bear the iniquity, he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he will divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this last, last particular section in Matthew chapter 27 the culmination of really the last nine weeks as we've been looking at Matthew's chapters 26 and 27. For the last nine weeks, we have lived in really the last 24 hours of your life as we looked at that. I pray, God, that as we look at your text now, as we look at Matthew chapter 27, Lord, that you would guide our hearts as we look at your burial and the significance of your burial. Lord, that you would come now and send your spirit We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Looking at chapter 27, starting at verse 51, it says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So as the hands of the Lord were being received, or as God the Father was receiving Christ in, he is also, as he's commending his hand, uh, Jesus into his hands, he's ripping the temple. And as he's ripping the temple curtain, he's saying, not only Christ can come now, but everyone can come now. And it says, the tombs who were also opened and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So it's a little bit kind of a strange text as it's talking about, especially as there's an earthquake going on. But here, Matthew is talking about this text in a futuristic sense in that, along with the ripping of the curtain and the earth shaking and Christ's eventual resurrection, that's when all the saints are going to go and be with Christ. Starting at verse 54, which is more um, in line with Good Friday as we're looking at now, it says, When the centurion and those who were there with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. We're asking ourselves, as we're looking at this last little section, what achieves salvation? What is it that achieves salvation for man? Here we see the centurion looking on, and it says he's filled with awe. Does a a filling of awe save? And he even makes a true declarative statement, a true theological statement by saying, truly, this was the Son of God. The first thing I want us to realize as we're looking at this question of what achieves salvation, specifically through the lens of the centurion, is that having the correct information about who Christ is does not save. The centurion was filled with awe, being filled with awe and wonder and knowing this is the Son of God that does not save. Christ saves. And keep going, it says in verse 55, And there were many women looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, the Mary of the mother of James and, and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. 
In contrast, where we have the centurion making this declaration and filled with awe and wonder, saying truly he was the Son of God, this declaration was not salvific. He was not necessarily, from, that, from what we can see on the surface, at all a believer. But then contrasting, we have these women who, are following, who were followers of Jesus. Christ had saved them. In verse 57, we're going to see an, a good act of someone, Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man that bought his grave. And so as we're looking at this, we can say, all right, right understandings and right declarations don't save. How about good works? This man's going to perform a good work. Now, whether this man was saved or not is really beside the question of, does the good work save? It says in verse 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. So we know that he's a disciple, but is what he's going to do. Truly, if there's ever a good act, the man that takes the bloody body of our Savior down from the cross and cleans it up and puts it into the grave, you would say, what he just did is certainly a good act that's got to do something to earn him salvation. Verse 58, but, but it doesn't. He was already a disciple. Verse 58, and he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Because of a, a, an Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 21, people who were Jewish were allowed to hang overnight on a cross and because of this they're wanting to take it down and go ahead and put him in the grave and Joseph took the body wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in the new tomb so the second thing as we're asking what achieves salvation the first thing is that having the correct information like the centurion does not achieve salvation the second thing is this doing good works doing good works for Christ does not save. Certainly this is a good work, but he's not a disciple because he did this good work. And if any of us are trying to perform the right actions in order that we can be saved, it's not enough to save. No amount of good works will save. Only Christ saves. And then it says in verse 60 that they laid him and they laid him in his own tomb. The burial of Jesus happens. We've, for nine weeks, talked about the scourging, the false trial, and all the way up until his bloody death on the cross. And now he died, and then the burial. Is there any significance in the burial? Let me just tell you a couple things that are significant. The, number, the first thing is that the burial proves that Jesus was actually dead. He was actually dead. That's important because a dead Savior first has to happen so that we can realize that's our punishment. We deserved death. And if Christ didn't die, then he did not achieve death for us. And so the burial proves to us that Jesus was dead. The second thing, the burial also shows that Scripture has been fulfilled. As it said in Isaiah 53, 9, which I read, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The fact that he's put into the grave and buried is fulfilling Scripture. So the burial is important because it shows that he's dead. The burial is important because it fulfills Scripture. And also, the burial has rich theological significance. The Lowering him into the, the ground and putting him into and burying him in the ground is, is illustrated for us with our believer's baptism. Romans 6, 4, where we said that we're buried with Christ in baptism. And so it's significant that he's buried so that whenever we understand theologically it's significant so that if Jesus really died and I count myself dead, that also then therefore I have to be dead spiritually to the old life. 
And so it's very important that we understand the burial of Jesus has a lot of significance for us. As it says, after they laid him in the tomb that they had cut in the rock, they rolled a great stone of the entrance in front of the tomb and they went away. In verse 61, it says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. D.A. Carson notes for something I didn't know about the two Marys that are there. It says that no mourning was permitted in Roman law. No mourning or, or, or weeping or crying was permitted for those that were executed under Roman law. So even as Mary and Mary are seeing him being killed, seeing him being crucified, they have to silently watch their friend, and Mary has to silently watch her son die. As we consider the fact that Jesus was doing this all alone, another thing to think about is that even in death, he wasn't even correctly mourned over in his death. Everything about this death of Christ screams out injustice, even not properly mourned. And he was completely innocent. This was truly the worst death possible for Christ. And then it says the next day, which is the Saturday, not the Sunday, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate, no doubt taking some kind of victory lap. It's all over. Everything's done. We can come out here. We've done it. We've killed this man. We we can celebrate what we've done. And so it says, Uh, In verse 63, and they said, Sir, remember how that imposter said while he was still alive after three days, I will rise. Now, we we shouldn't miss this. The Pharisees and the chief priests did not believe in Christ's resurrection. They remembered that he said that in John chapter 2, verse 19, three years prior to the beginning of his public service. But they did not actually believe it at all. That would mean that they believe in Christ. And they, they did not They are saying, remember how he did this? And then they say, therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people that he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. And then Pilate says, you have a guard of soldiers. In other words, I'm not wasting my Roman soldiers on that. You want to guard it? Take your Pharisee chief priest police and you guard the door For for me, he's dead. I'm done with this. And they're still trying to set the parameters. They're still trying to do everything they can to set the terms of how to keep Christ in the grave. We don't want him coming out. He said he was going to come out. We don't even believe that. But we're going to do everything I can so that, that even his followers can't come and take him and try to say, oh, he's not in the grave anymore. He must have, he must have risen. And so they're trying to do everything they can to set the terms of the whole story. In a lot of ways, we try to do that with our own lives. We think that salvation can be achieved through a lot of different ways. Perhaps you think, as I said in the very beginning, that it can't be achieved by just having the correct information. Also, we know that it can't be achieved by just um, performing good works. But no matter what you try to do to achieve salvation, if you're like these people and you're trying to set the terms in order to say, well, then this then, if it's not those things, this is how salvation happens. That doesn't either. There's only one way. The third way that we can try to achieve salvation, those who think that they define the terms on on fixing their salvation, that doesn't save either. Only Jesus saves. So here we're brought up to this particular moment. 
in verse 66. So they went and made the tomb secure and sealed the stone and set the guard. They put the Pharisees' police there over the, over the tomb. For nine weeks, we brought ourselves up into this moment, which I think for the disciples has got to be complete despair. No hope. The savior that they thought was going to be the savior of the world, the king of Jerusalem, set up the throne and rule and reign and take over, is laying there in the grave, dead, and the chief priests and elders have a guard there. And that's, that's the moment that we are in right now on a Good Friday service. Just as a way to recap of all the things that we've kind of learned over the last nine weeks to bring us to this particular point. Thursday night, he's with his closest friends. He wants to take the Passover with them. He washes their feet. He starts the Lord's Supper. He tells them someone's going to betray him. They all say, is it me? None of them thinks it's them. Judas calls him rabbi instead. He tells Judas it's going to be him. Judas departs. Peter said in that moment that he would never deny him. He goes into Gethsemane to pray. And in that moment, Peter's already fallen asleep and not staying awake and not helping him. Jesus begins to sweat literal drops of blood and he's begging God. His humanity is lifted as high as possible as he says, if there's any way, God, let this cup pass from me. And as he's doing that, his friend, who he's known for three years, come up and betrays him with a kiss. One of the, the highest forms of treason kisses him on the cheek for 30 pieces of silver. Just a very small amount. And they take him, arrest him, and they take him over before Caiaphas, the high priest. And they have this false sham trial where they say, it's because he blasphemed. He called himself God. Yeah, that's it. Now we can crucify him. Well, we're not allowed to crucify him. Let's take him over to the Roman soldiers because they're the only ones that are allowed to do it. They take him over to Herod, and Herod doesn't really want anything to do with it. He sends, he sends him back over to Pilate. Pilate says, I don't want to do it. I, I don't see that anything's wrong with him. But instead, how about Barabbas? They say, no, we don't want to kill Barabbas. We instead want Barabbas, kill Jesus, and his blood be on our heads. And then Pilate doesn't want to do it. He washes his hands. He sends him. And so then they spit on him, and they hit him, and they pull his beard, and they slap him in the face, and they mock him, and then they whip him all the way until his back's completely shredded, and he has to carry his cross, and he can only get to the city gate until Simon has given the task of carrying the, the cross the rest of the way outside of the complete city to Golgotha. And as he's there on Golgotha, they nail him to the cross. And as he's there for at least six hours, he's going to eventually die of asphyxiation, which is his lungs are going to fill with blood and he's going to drown on his own blood. And as he's there, he says some things like, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He screams out as it turns midnight and the whole earth goes dark and the full fury of God's wrath starts coming on to him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all the pain that he had felt, all the physical pain was nothing compared to the emotional distress he felt for the very first time from eternity past to eternity future as God the Father is now not in perfect relationship with him because of our sin. And in that moment, for just a little bit longer, he says to tell us die, it's over. He yields his spirit and he dies and an earthquake shakes the whole, the whole ground. And as that happens, they put him in the tomb and we get to this particular moment where John and all the disciples are gone. It's all over and everything's done. And Spurgeon, as he's looking at this particular um, part of the narrative of Christ, the passion narrative, not looking to the resurrection, but just looking at the burial. He said, instead of longing to live 
um, to live till Christ comes as some do, we might rather pray to have fellowship with Jesus in his death and in his burial. Because in those death and burials is where we can realize that's where salvation is achieved. Only in Christ, anything I can do will never measure up. Anything I try to perform, if I set the terms or anything, it'll never be enough to achieve my salvation. The burial of Christ re-emphasizes our utter need for him and him alone for salvation. Let's pray. Jesus, if I were to think on the rest of my life, all that you endured for those last 24 hours of your life, I don't think that I could mentally still understand it fully. But Lord, I want to. We want to. So would you give us some glimmer of understanding of all that you went through to achieve our salvation and would you destroy, destroy within us anything that thinks that on our own merits and our own world and our own life that salvation can come through anything by us setting parameters, setting terms or trying to work for it. I praise in Jesus' name.